All right, so we will return to our <coughs> study of Romans, chapter 1. Um, if you have the handout, you will see that this is the probably the shortest number of verses I've taught in one of my classes since... 2010, because <laughs> um, we're only going to do two, two verses today. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. If you take a look at the, the handout, you will notice I have given you three variations of the text. The first section is the Greek text along the top line in italics with a interlinear translation underneath it that isn't exact, but it sh kind of shows you, if you're ever curious of how difficult it is to translate into meaningful English, the interlinear shows you the order in which the Greek words are listed. So instead of saying, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God, it's not for I am ashamed of the gospel, the power for of God is unto salvation. It's just kind of all muddled up because of the nature of the Greek grammar. Then I've given you the King James Version, partly because it's still heavily ingrained in many people's minds of how this particular passage is rendered. And then I've given you the breakdown in the ESV with big gaps in between so you can make notes. <clears throat> anyway, it was a interesting exercise putting together the handout so that you would have something tangible to work with. One of the reasons why I'm focusing so specifically on these two verses is that these two verses were the foundation of the Reformation. So, the split between the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church, Martin Luther's understanding of this passage is really what started it all. And we'll get to that in a minute. First, I want to kind of go through the text itself so we have an understanding of the words and the meaning, but then I'll also give you a little of the uh, church historical context as well. It starts with an interesting phrase. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, don't you find that an odd thing for Paul to say? I mean, why would Paul even bring that up? Because it suggests possibly that there were those that were ashamed of the gospel. Maybe he had heard something in uh, what's going on in the Roman church, I don't know but it, it just kind of comes out of nowhere. And Paul doesn't repeat that phrase in, uh, in his other writings, at least not that directly. The word ashamed means to be disgraced or to be personally humiliated, or it can, be, it can mean dishonored due to wrong alliances or trusting in something that let them down. And he's kind of conversely saying the gospel is something that's not going to let you down. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not going to be ashamed of it. 
There is no disgrace in, dis- in trusting the gospel. Now, 30 years ago, John MacArthur wrote this particular book called Ashamed of the Gospel. I don't know if you've heard of it or seen it. Um, it's quite an extraordinary volume. He's, the subtitle is When the Church Becomes Like the World. And he's taking um, and explaining something, and I'm not going to get into all the details, but there was a controversy back in Charles Spurgeon's day called the downgrade controversy, where there were people within the church that were uh, letting secular influences come into the church itself. Spurgeon stood up against it very visibly and very powerfully. Because of that, he was tossed out of different uh, church organizations. He was criticized. He was, um, uh, people were telling, telling him that he didn't know what he was talking about. And what John MacArthur is doing in this particular book is saying, we're dealing with the same thing today. We just don't call it that. Here's an example of one of the messages that Charles Spurgeon's preached after he had been censured by the Baptist Union for his stance on this issue. Charles Spurgeon wrote, said this, we must never hide our colors. There are times when we must dash to the front and court the encounter when we see that our captain's honor demands it. Let us never be either ashamed or afraid. Our Lord Jesus deserves that we should yield ourselves as willing sacrifices in defense of his faith. Ease, reputation, life itself must go for the name and faith of Jesus. If in the heat of the battle our good name or our life must be risked, let us say, in this battle some will fall, why should not I? I will take part and lot with my master and bear reproach for his sake. We must be willing to bear ridicule for Christ's sake, even that peculiarly peculiarly envenomed ridicule which the cultured are so apt to pour upon us. We must be willing to be thought great fools for Jesus' sake. For my part, I'm willing to be 10,000 fools in one for my dear Lord and Master and count it to be the highest honor that can be put upon me to be stripped of every honor and loaded with every censure for the sake of the grand old truth which is written on my heart. If the Lord does not speedily appear, there will come another generation and another and another and all these generations will be tainted and injured if we are not faithful to God and to his truth today. We have come to a turning point in the road. If we turn to the right, mayhap our children and our children's children will go that way. But if we turn to the left, generations yet unborn will curse our names for having been unfaithful to God and his word. I charge you not only by your ancestry, but by your posterity, that you seek to win the commendation of your master, that though you dwell where Satan's seat is, you yet hold fast his name and do not deny his faith. 
it's kind of a interesting thing when you look at how the world is uh, addressing Christianity and those of us who are of the faith. I mean, just this past week, a Democratic senator on the floor of the House, or a representative on the, on the House, stood up and said, I am now going to recite to you everything Jesus said about LGBTQ. And he was then silent for his entire 20 minute time. Because Jesus had nothing to say. You mean a Republican? It was a Democrat who did this. He was trying to say that Jesus never talked about being gay. I'm just surprised it's a Democrat. Oh, he was saying it from the other. The point being is that Christianity was being mocked on the Senate, on the on the congressional floor, and. You might say, well, no, he never specifically addressed that, but he also didn't specifically address a lot of things. That's not the point. The point is, do you believe in the totality of Scripture? Do you believe in the totality of the message of Jesus Christ when it comes to sin and what that means? It's really quite fascinating. Um, Many of you are out in... Uh, work communities and you see the slow inexorable shift to where even if you state that you're a Christian you're immediately gone oh you're one of those even if you have a cross and you're wearing it yeah any kind of symbol it's just it's fascinating to see where we have come and here you have Spurgeon who's preaching to other Christians at the time, but it has the implication to the church who's trying to counter the world. And here you have Paul writing to the church saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's not there. Are you? This is gonna be a silly personal anecdote. And it has, it's just something that it's always bugged me in my past. So I went to high school at the Hawaii Baptist Academy. Now there's the word Baptist in it. So that's not cool when you're among your surfer dudes or you're on the, uh, the local park court playing basketball because you know you, you, you know make a good shot or somebody says hey dude yeah where do you go to school? I go to uh, Academy. Oh, yeah. Or you would, I would say HBA. Because I didn't want to say the word Baptist as if I were ashamed of the connection. Because it wasn't cool. Now, that's again, it's a silly thing. It's being, you know, more concerned about your peers than about your faith. might think less of me because I was going to a Christian school. It's interesting in Scripture, in the New Testament, 
in the Gospels, in Peter, in 2 Timothy, and in Hebrews. So four different writers. Not all Paul. The concept of being ashamed is brought out. Luke 9.26 Jesus said, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. And the glory of the Father and the holy angels. 1 Peter 4.16 But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, Paul writes, Be diligent and present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. And then Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, For he, meaning Jesus, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Paul declared it right here at the beginning of this extraordinary short passage that he will speak boldly, that ridicule, criticism, and persecution will not stop his fervor. And then later, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says that Jesus endured the cross and despised the shame of the sin that was placed upon him. So he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And the it is is present tense. It's now. It's current. It's happening this moment. And it's the power of God. We've talked about the Greek word power. You can see it if you look carefully at the Greek text. It is the word dunamis. Root word dynamo. Or power. We have our or dynamic, we get that word. We also get the word dynamite from it. The idea of this extraordinary power of God is for salvation. The word power is used 119 times in the New Testament, the dunamis word. 22 times it's translated as miracle. This idea of this extraordinary divine power is the power of God for salvation. Jeremiah 23, 29. Is not my word like fire, like a hammer which shall shatter rock? 1 Corinthians 1, 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the dunamis of God, the power of God. So 1 Corinthians 1, 18 comments on Romans 1, 16. This idea of salvation or being delivered or saved from sin to everyone without exception. Everyone who believes. And it's not just a mental assent saying, oh, you know, 
Uh, uh, sure, I, I can believe that. No, it is a full-blown idea of belief to the totality of one's being. Then it says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, again, we've studied this before, but what struck me in my preparation here is how much that phrase has had scholastic controversy. in pages and pages and pages and pages and I'm sitting there going it's kind of obvious to me what they mean but I guess people were trying to figure this out because he says the phrase to the Jew first now some will say that means that there is a hierarchy of God's salvation no in my opinion it's a chronology of God's salvation, not a hierarchy. God chose the Jewish people and he brought to them the, what, the entire Old Testament story of God's divine covenant with these people. I will promise to do this for you. And then they just reject him, reject him, reject him, but he kept his promise. And he said, and through, all, through all of this, through the son of David, I will bring you the Messiah. But now, the Messiah has come, and the gospel is available to the Greek or the Gentile equally. It is not a priority, it is a chronology. God never stopped keeping his covenant with the Jewish people. We also have to remember that. That covenant still exists. But there is a new covenant in the New Testament. Colossians 3, 10 through 11 says, We have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. And here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. And I wanted to put a comma here, Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist. <laughs> evangelical, non-evangelical. But Christ is all in all. It's very clear. Paul's writings just constantly drive this point in. is that it is for everyone, Jew or Greek. But Jesus is the only way to salvation regardless of your heritage. It doesn't matter. That background doesn't change who Jesus is or how you need to be responding to the call. See, yeah. uh, Jesus is the only way. Mm -hmm. And people really scoffed at that, the world. And yet, he's not ashamed. Right. There is just one way. Yeah. There's no shame in saying there is, ex it's exclusive. It's exclusive in the person of Jesus but it's inclusive in all who are invited. And that's where they, they're missing the point. Because you say, Jesus is the only way, and you go, well, that's exclusionary, and that's, no. It's actually the other way around. It's bigger. You know, the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit are the same but different. 
But it is interesting that when you look at that passage and look back in Acts, the power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You should be my witnesses. First, Jerusalem, Judea, to the Jews. And then to Samaria. Mm -hmm. To the non-Jews. So it's, it's in that passage, the power combination of the Jews first and then to the Greeks. And where did Paul go first in every city he went synagogue. to? Synagogue. He went to the synagogue first. He went to the Jewish people. And we have it how many times he would go there and they either kick him out or he just gets finally fed up and he has to go next door and hold meetings because they won't let him in the synagogue anymore? You know, one thing that comes to my mind is that there needs to be reinforcement in scripture because there, there are groups of people like the replacement theology folks that think the church has replaced the Jewish people. I mean, when you look at, if you really read the whole Bible, I don't know how they come up with that. You know, but I think you've got to have this kind of thing in there, too, to help reinforce that God still cares about the Jewish people. He cares about all people. Yeah. But his original covenant was with the Jewish people. There's no question about that. But it is definitely expanded way, well beyond that's exclusivity. Yeah. yeah. It's fascinating. Then it says here, for, this is verse 17 now, for in it, meaning the salvation, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Now I, I'm stopping there because the from faith to faith is another idea to look at. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. All right. I'm going to open that up to everyone here. Let's define righteousness. What does that mean? Doing right. Doing right? In the, context, in the context of salvation. What does righteousness mean? This is a key verb. Key key. key theological term here can also mean justification depending on your translation it says in the next verse that the just shall live by faith or the righteous shall live by faith but what does righteousness is what does that mean we say it we glibly will repeat it but can we define it the righteousness of God, even. Yeah. So that's perfection. Perfection, okay. A, to be made right with God, meaning in connection to. Anybody else? Care to stab at this? It's not easy. Right, and then we live in that state of righteousness by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
So just what you just did is expanded on the idea to bring all of the theological understanding of the wrongness of sin, the need to have reconciliation with God, the means by which that reconciliation occurs, then the righteousness of God is made evident or made or imputed to the individual who believes. Because you can tell someone who has no theological background or no scriptural background saying, well, you need to be righteous before God, and they'll go, huh? And I'll make it even worse. I'll give you the definition of the righteousness of God from Charles Hodge and his systematic theology. This is the definition. To me, it's very clear, but I know what all the words mean. The righteousness for which we are justified is neither anything done by us or wrought in us, but something done for us and imputed to us. It is the work of Christ, what he did and suffered to satisfy the demands of the law, which is what Lisa said. Hence, not merely external or ceremonial works are excluded as the ground of justification, but works of righteousness. All works, whatever kind or degree of excellence, are excluded. Hence, this righteousness is not ours. It's nothing that we have either done ourselves or that is inherent in us. Hence, Christ is said to be our righteousness and we are said to be justified by Christ's blood, death, and obedience. And we are righteous in him and are justified by him in his name for his sake. Please memorize that. And the next time someone brings it up, just, just go for it. But if you, you know, I went back and I read that paragraph three or four different times slowed way down and I'm realizing it's brilliantly crafted but how do you make it simple and because not everyone understands the theological understanding or the words like imputation and things of that nature in fact I you know in my work as a literary agent I'm working with a professor of theology at master seminary and he's doing a book on imputation. That's the subject. There's only going to be nine people that will read it. Um, actually, it'll be much better. Because he actually came up with the idea of doing a book on it because John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul got together and said the word evangelical has lost its meaning. It's become a political label. So what do we call someone who believes the gospel. And MacArthur jokingly said, well, let's call ourselves imputationists. And R.C. Sproul went, that's perfect, but no one will know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> the righteousness of God, meaning to be made right because of our sin through the sacrifice, blood, death, of, on the cross of Jesus Christ. It, that's the simple answer, to be made right. Because something is wrong. The problem is there are, 
there, the society says there's no wrong. It's a right and wrong. There's no right and wrong. No, they say that right is wrong. Yeah, right is wrong. I mean, it just it's all confused at this point. And you talk about shame. There's no shame anywhere. Oh, you shouldn't be shamed about this point. Yes, you should. This is just awful what you're doing. And anyway, um, that's a rabbit trail I shouldn't go down. Um, But this righteousness of God is revealed. Note the Greek word. In your text, it's apokalutai. You see the root there, apocalypse? The idea of reveal, apocalypse or revelation, to be revealed, to lift a covering or to lift a veil. This righteousness, which we just try to define in a simple, simple way, is a very theological, very powerful thought, but it's revealed. And how is it is revealed is the next phrase. It's revealed from faith to faith. Now, from faith to faith, (laughs) you will see right away, if you look at your handout, the Greek text kind of reads from faith to faith. The King James reads from faith to faith. But the ESV that I've printed out for you has a different rendering. From faith for faith. Wait a minute. Well, let me further confuse you. Isn't this going to be fun? So the King James, the New American Standard, and the Christian Standard Bible all say from faith to faith. The ESV says from faith for faith. The NIV renders it as by faith from first to last. I'm going, that's not in the Greek. Well, kind of is. The New Living Translation renders it from start to finish by faith. You can see what they're trying to do here? They're trying to explain the phrase from faith to faith. What does that mean? Believe it or not, there's four different scholastic renderings of this. And you can see them just in the translations I just threw out. Because does it mean the that salvation comes from God's faith first and our, faith, our response in faith to it? So it comes from God and then is responded to from us? Or... Is it the faith from one person to another who are evangelizing from faith to faith? Or could it mean a progressive or growing development of faith from one degree of faith to the next? Or, let's see if I can get this one right, that... um, brand new followers of Christ whether we're brand new or mature we must trust God from start to finish from faith to faith to faith 
Guess what? All four are theologically correct. That's my answer. Exactly, that's my answer. The answer is yes. <laughs> so which one? The answer is yes. Um, but imagine how confusing this could be.